Hi, I'm Adrienne. I help people tell the stories they were told not to talk about. Maybe by their own inner critic. Maybe by the world. Either way, I'm here to serve as a kind of story midwife, birthing these beautiful naked narratives and helping them thrive. Telling our own stories and speaking our own truth should be the easiest thing in the world, but it's not. We all get blocked. We all feel censored, stymied, or silenced at times. We struggle to find the right entry point, to articulate the message we want to convey, and to identify the ideal audience to receive it. And that, my friends, is where I come in. I'm a professional brand voice consultant and story coach. I help entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, storytellers, and anyone else who is ready to start living out loud to deliver their authentic voice directly to those who most need to hear it. Are you ready to get authentic? Good, because that's allowed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the That's Allowed podcast. I'm your hostess, Adrienne McKeon. All right. Today, we have Denise Ritter-Berardini. I love that beautiful last name. Uh, But as she just explained to me, she is not Italian. It is her husband who is Italian. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, Denise? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. I am uh, living in Virginia, and I teach at a, a small smallish, like 13,000 students-ish, university in the area. I teach music, specifically voice, Mm -hmm. and, um, but I am what I call multi-curious. I have lots and lots of interests outside of music. I'm a uh, big-time reader and a lifelong learner. I would probably go back to school and get multiple degrees if, if people would just let me. (laughs) and or pay for them and um and i i i love podcasting and listen and and listen to a lot of podcasts so i enjoy i just enjoy all the things i didn't know i didn't know yeah here here well and i know you're a reader because you read my book which is yes, awesome. I did. It's very good. Yes, I did. We just had a, an interview on Denise's podcast where we talked about my book, Melting Ivory, but we won't get into that here today. Today, I'm going to ask you the question that I always ask, which is, what is the story you are not telling? Gosh, you know, I don't know if there's a story I'm not telling now, but there was a story I didn't tell for a really long time. Let's hear it. Um so I was married to an alcoholic and mm. a, 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 an addict, m- more than one addiction, but primarily alcohol was the thing that t- uh, took our marriage down. Mm-hmm. And while living in that marriage for 14 years, my family had zero idea, nor did most of our friends. I mean, mm. they, my, my friends uh, n- knew that, you know, he could be sometimes a sloppy drinker. Mm-hmm. but they didn't know to the degree right. and to the extent of that. And I didn't tell my family at all because I am a um, very strict evangelical preacher's kid. And mm-hmm. it was n- not um, mm, something I felt I could share and still remain part of my family. If yeah. that makes sense. I was afraid that they would, you know, be like, Nope, get out. You can't, Mm -hmm. you can't remain in our family. We're not, we don't approve. Right. 
if I wanted out of the marriage. So it took me a long time to get to the place where I was okay if I lost my family. Yeah, that is such a hard thing to not feel safe telling the people who are supposed to be your support system what's going on. Yeah, but, you know, it turns out it was in my head. They did support me. Funny thing, right? Funny thing. It was was a reality I had uh, convinced myself was was true. And I think, I think of the reason I can, it, it was easier to stay in it if that was my reason. Yeah. I, yeah. If I just took ownership of, I did, wasn't strong enough to get out. That was more, more painful than saying, oh, well, I can't get out because I will lose not just this, this family, but all of my family. And I, you know, so that was a safer story, I think, to tell myself because yeah. Actually, my people just wanted me to be safe, right? And be okay and happy, ultimately. As with most parents, they want that for their child. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, when I did tell it, people were like, what are you talking about? It was almost like they didn't believe me. And, you know, when I started showing them all the evidence of it, right, they were like, how have you hid this for so long? Mm-hmm. I got really, really good at hiding, hiding all of the stuff, hiding all of the evidence, hiding all of the pain and all of the uh, fallout from yeah. from that. But, you know, having children woke me up. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing what you'll be willing to do for your children that you weren't willing to do for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. I've seen that a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I said that I wasn't going to talk about my book, but you just reminded me of something. <laughs> yeah. Because when I, when my sister read the book, mm-hmm. the first thing she did was call me up and she'd been, you know, she'd been up all night reading the book. Mm-hmm. She calls me yeah. first thing in the morning. She calls me and she says, why did I not know? Am I that much of an idiot that I didn't see this while it was happening? And I said, Mm -hmm. Kat, I didn't see it while it was happening because I wouldn't allow myself. I couldn't Mm -hmm. look at it. Mm -hmm. If I was aware of what was going on, then I would have to do something about it. And I felt completely helpless and like there was nothing I could do about it. And so I just had to pretend like it wasn't even happening and believe all his crazy lies about what was happening. And, you know, I, I got myself into that upside down gaslit world. Right. Believing that this was somehow my fault and I was creating this. And so why Mm -hmm. would I tell my family about that? That's just embarrassing. (laughs) That's just selling myself out. Right. And I did the same thing you did. I thought if I told my mom what was really going on, that, you know, she would not love me anymore. She wouldn't support me. And of course it was all in my head, was all in my head. But it's funny how we do that little dance and people, especially with divorce, they'll say, oh, you know, I'm staying for the kids. No, you're not staying for the kids. The kids don't want you to do that. I can tell you as a kid whose parents fought like cats in a bag, when my dad finally (laughs) left, I was like, oh, thank goodness. It's quiet. It's quiet. (laughs) Right. No more fighting. Right. 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 Yeah, your yeah. parents, your kids, for the most part. And I'm saying there are some bad families out there. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but no. I've, if you have a good family, they just want what's best for you. If you don't, then who cares what they think? Get get them out mm-hmm. of there. You know? That's right. Right. Find your own family. Right, right. Right. I had to 
I mean, I had to be willing mentally and emotionally to go to tell them. And, and what, what was the last straw was that I was standing outside a home that I had spent about a year fixing up. So bought a fixer upper, right? Mm -hmm. And he, 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 like his father knew nothing about tools. Working a tool was not something he could do or would do, was willing to do. So I hired a guy to help me and convinced him to let me be his apprentice. And I helped alongside of him lay new tile, lay parquet flooring, remove the kitchen counters, replace the kitchen counters, paint the kitchen, paint the, you know, and so I tear down wallpaper, take out a closet, put in a different closet, you know, do those kinds of things. And I just learned right along beside this guy. And this guy was an older gentleman. And he'd say things to me like, what's up with your husband? Why, why are you doing all the work? I don't understand this, you know, and I just laugh and go, well, you know, this is modern, this is modern marriage for you. I mean, men don't always do the traditional thing and, and women don't always do the traditional thing. He's like, I, I guess. I mean, he, he could not figure it out. Yeah. But, uh, but I, so I, I had worked, like really worked my ass off all year long for this house so that it would be up to date. When we moved in, it had like green, long shag carpet, it, you know, it had been built in the seventies and it had all the traditional things of a 70s house you know yeah. it had never been updated and wallpaper orange and kind of brown you know um what i what i would call like uh that space space modern you know that was really popular oh, yeah. in the 70s you know oh, yeah. <laughs> you know it, it had that kind of wallpaper and like lime green and avocado avocado green i think they called it back in the day uh-huh. and and, you know, I, I tore all that down, all of that. So I grew to really love this house because I had my blood, sweat and tears in this home. Absolutely. And I'm standing outside looking at this house and a guy walks up to me and says, um, you, are you Denise? And says my thin last name. And I say, yes. And he says, well, consider, consider yourself served. Uh, your house is up for sheriff sale. You have four weeks to get out. Oh my God. And I was absolutely stunned. Right. Wow. Like just, and that was the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. So I, um, at that point I kind of really, it outed me. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to decide, you know, to tell my family or to not tell my family, but either way I was going to have to explain the loss of this home. Yeah. And, uh, so it, it really did. It, it didn't, I didn't walk out of the closet. I was thrown out of the closet by that experience, <laughs> whether I wanted it or not, but really in hindsight, even though it was awful and terrible, um, it was the best thing that happened to me because I probably would have continued to perseverate in that for, uh, a bit longer than mm-hmm. I, than I should have. And the boys would have, my two sons would have been a little bit older and it would have been much harder for them. They were babies. So, so they don't really have lots of memories about, you know, mom and dad being together. They, they don't really have those, those memories. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I feel like sometimes I you get a push a for them. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you get a little push from the universe. I, yeah. I think, I don't think anyone like steps out 
of their closet voluntarily. If they're in there, they're in there until they can't stand it anymore for some reason. You know, if if things are tolerable, you tolerate them. And Mm -hmm. when they become intolerable, that's when you change. Yeah. I mean, we had had the conversation of, I I mean, I had told him, I want out of this. I can't do this anymore. I've never, I feel hopeless and, and, and ashamed, Uh, you know, and I had, I had, you know, and I'm embarrassed by our situation and I, I, I want out and, you know, and he was saying, no, 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 no. But really, ultimately, I knew that it didn't matter that he said, no, it takes one to walk away, right? Not right. two, it takes one. Yeah. And, I, and but I just was trying to figure out in my head, like, how to get it done. How, how could I do it? And I did not have uh, control of the money, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and so how could I get uh, um, control of it? And how could I walk away and still have a place to live. And I was trying to figure those things out, but, but at the same time, uh, the universe did not allow me to take the time to figure that out. You know, as soon as I lost that home, time was up Yep, because whether I liked it or not, I was going to have to either be homeless. And, and I did, um, stay in the car for a couple of days with the boys. We, I had bought a van. And the boys and I stayed in that van and camped, you know, like it was like in August Uh in Oklahoma, which is hotter than hell. Yeah. And so, but we camped, you know, and we, we did some kind of fun things and they didn't know, but inwardly, you know, I was a mess. And, um, before I could just kind of figure out how to call my, my family and my sister was visiting. So I, I said, let's meet at Cracker Barrel. And we met at Cracker Barrel and I told him in public because I did not know what my mother's reaction was going to be. Yeah. I was afraid that it was going to not go well. But like I said, they pleasantly surprised me and, and you know, stepped up to, to help me and to help, help us figure out a way to be in a safe place and yeah. all of that. So. Um, I think we underestimate our family a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. It's the narrative that we get put on us and then we have been in turn put a narrative on them. Yeah, absolutely. Consider though, here's the thing. It may be that it needed to get to that point for your family to have that reaction. Do you know what I'm saying? If you had yes. come to them earlier and said, you know, mm-hmm. I want to leave my husband, they might have given you pushback and said, no, yeah, are you sure? True. Did you try everything? Did you go to counseling? Blah, blah, blah. And at that point, it's obvious that like, no, this is over. The only thing you can say is here, let me help you pick up the pieces. Because mm-hmm. what else are they going to say at that point? Like, no, right. Back in there. Try to fix this. Yeah. <laughs> what? Back, back, back to your camping life. No. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you know, the universe knows what it's doing sometimes. I so think how it do probably you probably knows all yeah. the time. All the time. <laughs> we just don't. We have no idea. Yeah. So how did this experience change you? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I've always been kind of a positive person. Um, I see the silver lining. Uh, when something bad happens, I can find a way to see that there is something good that will come out of it right um but I think that became even stronger in me when that occurred because it took me a little bit of time but I I had to really scramble to try to figure out what 
what to do because I had a music school and I was um, at one of those music schools where I taught voice, I ran it, I, I, I paid the rent on the building, I did those kinds of things, you know, paid the bills and paid, and paid payroll and all of that. And people who may not have places to teach violin or might not have places to teach piano in their home or whatever, they would come and teach there, right? So mm-hmm. I had a cadre of employees that came and taught lessons and, and uh, uh, anyway, so I, I had this business, but um, a judge, the judge over the divorce was like, well, if you want sole custody, you're going to need to get a real job because I didn't have health insurance. The, right. He had the health insurance. So, um, because he worked for a corporate company mm-hmm. and I was like, well, I own a business. And he was like, well, I don't know. You need to figure it out because I'm not giving you sole custody of these children. If I don't know, A, you can support them, you know, that you have a, you have an income and B, that you can provide health insurance for them. Now I'll give you today, I will give you shared custody, but I'm not going to give you sole custody of your children without knowing that there are fail safes and that they can, uh, that you can afford health insurance for them. And I was just like, so blown away by that. It was not something I expected. And, um, and because my husband and I had, or that, you know, at the time he was still my husband, we had agreed that I would get sole custody because he knew he could not take care of them. Yep. And, and I had also told him that I would put it in the divorce decree that he was drunk and that that was the reason. And if he would sign, sign them away to me, that I would just say in there that we had irreconcilable differences. differences. He agreed because he did not want that in the public record. Of course. Right. Anybody can look at a divorce decree to see what the deal is. Yep. So, so, um, he agreed to that, but the judge wasn't having any of it. So I had to dissolve the, the, the business and try to figure out how to get health insurance. And the quickest way I knew to get health insurance was to go teach public school because I, I, I did have a public school K through 12, um, certification that I could revive, mm-hmm. uh, easily. All I had to do was just go take another little test. And if I, and I knew I'd pass the test, right. And I could go teach. Um, so I took the very first music job I could find, which was a, a K through eighth grade, um, you know, teaching music. And, mm-hmm. um, there are things about that. I like, there are also things about it that I did not sign up for. Right. <laughs> but it provided all the things for the judge. So he was satisfied and I got sole custody, but I quickly realized that that in Oklahoma, a teacher makes shit pay. It is terrible, yeah. terrible pay. Yeah. And it was at the time too. And when I first taught, in fact, I graduated from a university in Oklahoma. And when I first taught, you know, right after undergrad, I literally, traveled to tech, went and got a job in Texas because I would immediately make about $18,000 more just by going to Texas, 30 minutes over the red river. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I opted to not teach in Oklahoma where I got my degree. I opted to teach in Texas and took all of their tests and passed them so that I could make 18. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. The same job, the same degree the same everything you know so anyway make a long story short I I realized quickly realized that teaching in Oklahoma you know was not going to be something I was going to be able to support my children 
on that yeah. I, I was going to need to have a second job or something. And I just wasn't willing to, to have a second job and never be home with yeah. two raising two children by myself, even though my parents were very much helpful and very willing to, you know, watch them after school until I got home or, or whatever, or at the time they were babies. So I wasn't really, they weren't, they were doing like some mommy days out kind of things, but you know, my, and I knew my parents would, would watch them, but I didn't want that for them either because they were older and, and, and also, you know, the kids were going to go to school soon. So I um thought, well, you know what? I I will start applying for higher ed jobs. And so I started applying at universities. And then funny little thing happened during the time I wasn't teaching and was running my music school. And that was that suddenly the business of higher ed very much changed. And now it wasn't a master's degree. You couldn't get a, a job in higher ed in music with a master's degree. You had to have a, a doctorate of some sort, either mm -hmm. a PhD in ed or a, what we call a doctor of musical arts yep. or, you know, something, something to that extent, you had DFA. to have some kind of a doctorate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, and that was like, oh my gosh, really? I have to go back to school. Really? Yeah. You know? And so I thought, well, I'll apply at the university of Oklahoma. So I applied there. And of course there's an audition, just like with any performing art thing. I applied, I did the audition. I did not hear from them, did not hear from them, did not hear from them and thought, well, okay, I'm going to go get a job in corporate and give up on music altogether and all my passion, my first love, because the world is clearly telling me this is not going to happen. So one day, and it's like June, July, and you know, that audition was in February. And I, I go to the mailbox and there's this big, um, you know, manila envelope. I open it up and the paper that comes out of it says, your teaching fellowship day, days are, you know, and start telling me that I'm going to be, I'm supposed to be in these seminar classes in August, in two months, in August for my teaching fellowship. And I'm like, what are they, they've sent this to the wrong person. What are they talking about? I never got an acceptance letter. I never got anything saying I had been accepted to the program. Wow. So I call the head of the voice department. I'm like, I think you all, they, I think the university sent this to the wrong person. She's like, no. And I said, I don't, but you all never accepted me. She's like, yes, uh, yes, we did. I'm looking at the copy of the letter right here. We absolutely did accept you. And we took you on with, on a full full scholarship with a teaching assistantship. So then again, you know, the university like shoves me into a place that I thought I wasn't going to go at all and um, ended up, you know, getting a, getting a doctorate, raising two boys by myself and with, with zero child support. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all the things that I knew that I would, would happen. Right. Yeah. Um, and and, um, my parents helped as, you know, as much and as best that they could, but it was, that's where I became addicted to coffee. That's my addiction story <laughs> <laughs> because it was get up at 6am, get them ready mm -hmm. for the bus, right? Have a little breakfast, have a ton of coffee, <laughs> try to get as much homework done as I could before I went to my classes, go to my classes home in time I did hire an undergrad student to like babysit until I could get home so she'd mm -hmm. meet him at the bus on some of those days she'd meet him at the bus 
I, and, and feed them and, and help them get some of their homework done or whatever, watch them while they play outside. And then I'd, I'd get home, feed them dinner, you know, help them do their homework, whatever needed to be done, say prayers, read a book, you know, go to bed nine o'clock. I'm start drinking coffee again because I've got to stay up all night to write all the papers and to do all the homework and to, to try to get through this degree as best as I could. Yeah. And people are like, wow, I don't, I don't know how you did that. I just really don't understand how somebody could, could, you know, go to school, raise two boys on their own. And, and, and I held a couple of other little part-time teaching gigs, you know, teaching adjunct here or there during the school year, because I knew summers would be tough, right? Mm -hmm. No income during the summer. And my response to them is mothers do this all the time. Yeah. Mothers, this is what moms do. Uh, you know, there are tons of single moms out there who are doing what I, or, and single men, I mean, mm-hmm. who single parents, but more often than not single women mm-hmm. will do this, uh, and do whatever it takes to mm-hmm. raise their children and to try to better themselves and better their children's situation. I mean, it's how we evolve as people, right? We wouldn't evolve if every generation didn't say, I want something better for my child. Mhm. Mhm. That's that's the nature of evolution, really. Yeah. And isn't it funny how often it happens that right when you get to that point of giving up where you're like, "Okay, universe, if this isn't meant to happen, I'm okay with that. You know, I'll just go get a job or whatever it is." And then here it is. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons why I know that I was always meant to do music. First of all, you know, being a preacher's kid, we, my dad pastored in some pretty small little evangelical churches when I was young, you know, and so I'm really most of his career, but, but uh, the particular denomination that they're, that they were part of is not a large denomination. You know, it's not Southern Baptist. It's not, it's not Presbyterian or Methodism or Catholicism. You know, it's a small little, very niche yeah, uh, sect of Christianity. And so small churches is that's the thing in that particular denomination. And the thing about it is, is it, um, you know, the pay wasn't great. Mom and dad were not super well off or wh- whatever, but the, um, the, the thing about that is when you grow up in just this little niche and that's the only thing that you know, right. Mm-hmm. and you're that you are the family in that church that's all there and your your father's the leader or whatever you know your mom teaches Sunday school and me and my sisters we were the musicians we were the church musicians we Mm -hmm. each played an instrument we all sang and we were the choir you know I mean yeah and so we grew up with music being just always in the house and always at church and being part of that tradition right so I grew up seeing gospel music and hymns, but, um, but I've always just kind of, it never was a choice for me. I've never really had a choice. It's been, it was decided for me, I think before I was ever, because I swear to God, every time I get out, try to get out of it, Adrienne, I, I think I, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to get out of music and I'm going to do something different. And the universe just kicks my ass right back yep. into it every time, no matter what, it's real annoying. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> in many ways. It's really yeah. annoying. But I'm also grateful because I'm also one of the few people that I graduated with, you know, that are still making a living doing music that, yeah. that you know, make my, my living from something I'm really passionate about and have a talent for. Yeah. Right. Not a lot of people get to make a living at the thing they're talented for. Well, I think not a lot of people take the risk of making it happen. Oh, that's true. That's, that is true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I've, you probably have this happen to you too, as an artist, when you go to a dentist or you go to the doctor or something and somebody goes, what do you do? And you tell them that you're an actor, the, you know, a person in theater mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, you're, they'll, they, I, more times than not, they'll go, you know, I really wanted to do that, but my parents wouldn't let me. Yep. Yep. And I just go, wow. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, it's good. We need dentists, right? <laughs> I don't know how many kids yes. are like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a dentist, you know, <laughs> but it's needed. So it is, I guess it's good that there is that, you know, societal pressure to do these jobs that really need to be done. And that's why we pay those also jobs make well. A lot of money. Yeah. Right. <laughs> to incentivize people because they're not as fulfilling to our souls, perhaps. Yeah. I think dentistry is one of the highest suicide rates among doctors, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That would be depressing to look in somebody's mouth every day. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could do mm. it, but yeah, God bless so. you doctors and uh, dentists yes. out there. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So what do you, who do you think needs to hear this story? You know, um, I think, I think there are a lot of women and a lot of people who get stuck with someone who, and that's why I say is it is their personal representative, right? Like we dated for three years mm -hmm. and I'd known him since he was a boy because his parents were, went to our church at one time. Mm -hmm. So we really thought we knew this family and I really thought I knew this family, but come to find out actually his father was abusive and a closet drunk. Yeah. And so, and there, the, among um, addiction, there's a the kind of this new thought in addiction that there is no such thing as a gateway drug that actually the gateway drug is trauma. Yeah. And and I, I definitely believe that. And I do know that he had, which by the way, he's been sober for two years. Congratulations is, to him. Is, that is. Yeah, and, and to my sons who have been yeah. able to rekindle and, and, and foster a relationship with him now. Oh, good. So yes, it's wonderful for my children. But um, I know that he has had and, and still has a lot of pain from some things that were done to him as a child. Right. Of course. And, and so at the hands of his father. So I, I, uh, I know that, you know, there's empathy to be had for somebody who is addicted and, mm -hmm. but it cannot be to the detriment of your, yourself or mm -hmm. your children. Mm -hmm. And that m making the choice to walk away from that, or if for no other reason to, but to teach your children that that behavior is not okay. Yeah. And that that behavior is not going to be tolerated because uh, of your caring for that person, mm -hmm. but also for the caring of your own self 
the caring for your own life story, the trajectory of your own life. And that just because you marry someone or become entangled with someone does not mean then that your life is now uh, irrevocably tangled. It is not. Mm -hmm. You can undo that. It takes one, not two. Mm -hmm. It takes one. Yeah. And I um, hadn't really thought of it that way until I, I saw a counselor who said, and I, you know, I t- and I was telling her how badly I, I just had no hope and I wanted out. And I said, but I don't think he'll let me go. And she was like, what do you mean he's not going to let you go? He doesn't have a choice because it takes one to leave. Mm-hmm. It takes two to stay. It takes one to leave. And being raised in the way that I was raised, it just, that never dawned on me. You know, it just never dawned on me because it was preached to me not only from a pulpit, but also from my parents listening to them talk about people who'd been, gotten divorced of, you know, how divorce was a sin and you didn't do it unless it was biblical. And if you did and you remarried, then you, you were uh, guilty of uh, um, adultery and that you would go to hell. And, you know, so all of that narrative yeah. was something that it took me a really long time to wash my hands and to un you know unbrainwash myself because yes. it is brainwashing mm-hmm. right yeah so i think anyone who's in this situation and and just doesn't know what to do or thinks that they're staying for their children's sake mm-hmm. i would say you're not doing it for your children's sake and you need to really um think about what you want for yourself and for them and, and, and something that's the best for you can also be the best for them. Yes. It's not selfish to say, this is not good for me. Mm -hmm. This is not best for me. And I need to teach my children to always pursue what's best for them. Yeah. What's best for and you'll protect them in that way. You'll teach them some some resiliency as well. Absolutely. Resiliency is is huge. Having not just grit, but resilience. Yes. I think all addiction is just a way of avoiding some central pain. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, unfortunately, the only way out is through that pain. Mm-hmm. And so the longer you help someone avoid that pain, the worse you make it on everyone, yourself included, right. because they're not saving them from that pain. They're going to have to face it eventually, or they're mm-hmm. going to die. They're going to, yes. their, their addiction will kill them. And right. so it's one or the other. And so if you yeah. refuse to help them stop numbing the pain that they need to face and they need to look at, you're helping them. And I know it doesn't feel like that at the time. But, oh no! Yeah. No, I thought counting, counting the amount of alcohol, counting the beers, counting the, you know, right. and 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 trying to um, manage it because I mean I managed it. I managed oh, yeah. it for you know a long time, mm-hmm. and 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 then what, you know when we'd be invited to parties or things like that, I'd really count because I knew after this many things would get ugly. So I knew we needed to go home before this minute, whatever this many was. Yeah, right. I don't remember now, but. However, and it, and it depended whether it was beer or whether it was hard liquor, you know, so 
he could tolerate a lot more beer than he could hard liquor. But uh, so I, I was constantly in the background, counting, li- living on really being very nervous all the time about what was going to, I did not want to go to people's homes. I did not want to go to parties. I did not want to go to the out to eat dinner and those kinds of things, because all I could do was count and figure out what was going to be my next move to manage this addiction. And even though we saw counselors, you know, all of that, that's a whole other podcast, but (laughs) you know, it was, um, it just was constant unrelenting pain. Yeah. For him and for me. Yes. Both. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I love the word manager. That is so perfect. I think anyone good at that. Yeah. Anyone (laughs) who gets into a situation like that finds themselves in that position of, okay, now I have to be the manager of everything because this person is obviously not in control (laughs) of themselves or the situation at all. And so now you have to become this hyper responsible manager of everything, of them, of yourself, of the situation. And, you know, I don't know if he uh, was ever abusive or violent or anything when, when he was drunk, but I know that often can be a part of things and you have to learn that Mm -hmm. eggshell dance and you have to learn to control yourself around him when he's like this, because Mm -hmm. otherwise bad things happen to you. And it's all part of that. Oh, verbally, verbally for sure. Yeah. And that was at the point when we, when we got, you know, when I finally said I've had enough and I want to, I want a divorce, then it went, it, it, it was, it was, it ratcheted up. Yeah. He, before all he had to do was just be, you know, verbally abusive. But once I said, I'm done here. And like you said, I'm saying no to you. Yes. And I'm going to start drawing some boundaries. Then it, it got, it ratcheted. It, you know, it, it took another little bit of a, of a lift in its intensity. And then it became fists and doors, fists and yep. walls, throwing of chairs. And, you know, it wasn't directly my face, but I, in, in inwardly, I knew that it would be only a matter of time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing. Emotional abuse is so insidious because it's like psychological operations. You know, they, it's mental torture where you are constantly in fear that things are going to get worse and you don't know how much worse and you don't know how. And I always say, you know, the, the secret to psyops is that if someone, if you're aware that someone's doing it, then they're not very good at it. And so of course Mm -hmm. it takes a while to figure out that this is what is happening to you. And so often we find ourselves in these situations and we look around and go, how did I get here? How did I get this far into this? Well, it's because they're good at what they do, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we get, I think it's hard to admit that you've been wrong about someone though. Oh, I think it's really hard to admit that you've been wrong about this person and that you somehow you know, you feel really stupid and you feel like somehow you must not have been very wise or very intuitive and that you were foolish or you wouldn't have ended up with this person in the first place. Yes. Didn't you see it? What, what, where were the red flags? Why, why did you do, why did you keep going forward? And so we'll put off the inevitable as the person who's not the abuser, but the person who's having to put up with the abuse, you, you put off the inevitable because you're going to have an egg on your face. Yes. And you're convinced that that egg is never going to wash off. Right. And especially when people have warned you 
You know, they said, oh, this guy's no good or whatever it is. Then you double down and you double down and you say, no, 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 he's, he's good. And here's why. And you convince yourself. And this is why I always, when I see that someone's in a situation like this, I am very careful not to say anything against their abuser and not to use the word abuser or anything like this. Mm -hmm. I just try to build them up and I try to build up their confidence. And I just ask them, Mm. what's your ideal situation look like? What does your ideal scene look like? Is this, is this it? Uh, Mm -hmm. And if not, how can I help you find that? Because if you in any way push back against that person, then they have to, they feel like they have to defend them and they will fight and fight and say, no, 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 I need to stay in this because, and they play this mental Mm -hmm. trick on themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you see someone who's stuck in a, a, an abusive situation, really take that to heart. (laughs) Be be very careful Mm -hmm. what you say. That's great advice. Actually, really. You can get someone to dig themselves even deeper if you start to to push back against it. Yep. I I can see that. I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's what, that's really wise. I think. All right. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the main message or takeaway from your story? Hmm. I think, um, I think, I think being courageous, having some courage, um, and knowing that when you make a hard decision, when you make the hard decision and you step out in some courage, that the, the, the world, the universe, God will give you everything that you need to be okay. Absolutely. Sorry, that's making me tear up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think so. I think it really, it's, it's, it's true. It's, um, I, I lost a sister um, many years ago, 25 years ago to breast cancer. And for a long time after that, it was really hard for me to like pray or think about anything spiritual. And I remember this so clearly. And, 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 and it was me folding clothes. And I was just thinking about, you know, how difficult life had, had been uh, for her in the last bit of her life. And, um, and I thought, you know, God, where were you? Where were you during that time? Uh, And where are you now for me? Where, why have you not, why are you not showing up? Right. Why hast thou forsaken me? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of that. I mean, you know, you can't really get away entirely of your upbringing. So, you know, every once in a while I still have these big conversations with God and, and that was one of them was, you know, why have you not, why have you left? Why are you absent during this and during this struggle and all this pain that I'm, I'm having? I mean, my marriage is awful and I've lost my sister and, and it was it wasn't an audible voice. I'm not going to say that. I think anybody who says God told me you should run, but I but I do think that you know there was this impression I would say, mm-hmm. and the impression was, oh I I've been here all along. You have just you have not reached out, you have not stepped out. Yeah, and that was a turning point for me in my grief. And I, I do, I do really think that when you, 
decide and you are you decide to be courageous and you decide to be do something brave like walk away from a situation where you are in an abusive unhappy place and and even if you know even if it's not abusive if you're unhappy if you have realized that this person that you're with or whatever you what the job you're in yeah the a relationship with a with a sibling a relationship with a long girlfriend or boyfriend you know somebody you've known your whole life or whatever and it just isn't working for you anymore but it's going to be hard to walk away and to to try to do something different that if you have the courage if you have the the ability to just do what you need to do to protect yourself whether that's physically, mentally, emotionally, to get yourself to a better place that the universe will, will catch you. It is there waiting. It is there waiting for you to do the first step. Because it's an expression of faith, isn't it? You say, I yes. trust you, universe. You will have my back if I do this thing. And that trust is rewarded. That trust is rewarded. I really do trusting think that, yourself. Yeah, yeah. Fortune does favor the the brave and the bold, you know. And so, if you are willing to face your fear, I always say everything you want is on the other side of your fear. If you are willing to face that fear and trust that good things will come when you live in your integrity and mm-hmm. make those authentic choices for yourself. Absolutely. You'd be amazed at how the universe shifts itself to reward you for that and to catch you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a beautiful takeaway. Thank you. Yes. Well, it's great to have this conversation with you. Yeah, this is lovely. Is there anything else that the audience needs to know? Um, I'm not about my, yeah, really not about my story. I mean, I, I think I mean, we all have stories, don't we? Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I have Everybody this show. Has a story. If you've lived, yeah. If you've lived it all, you've got a story. You've got a story. At least one. At least lots of them. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, when we have those stories inside of ourselves, I always say they can, they can get stuck inside of you and they color everything that tries to come out of you and they can, right they can gum up your voice and not allow you to speak freely. And so as soon as you Mm -hmm. kind of cough up that story and get it outside of yourself, then it's amazing how it frees you up and it allows you to then see it as a story and say, Oh, I don't think I want this to be my story anymore. I'm going to put this over here as a story of someone that was me. And now this is my new story. This is the perspective that I'm able to have now from here that I see that as a story that I can now share with others so that they don't step in that same pothole that I fell into, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's not living inside of me. And it's not part of the story I tell myself about myself anymore. Right. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think having the, having, telling the story is vital to healing and to uh, changing the chapter. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Can you tell us about you and where to find you? I know you have a podcast. Yes, I do. I have a podcast called High Notes with Dr. B. It's not about music. It's just, it's, it's just kind of who, who I am, right? I mean, I do have musicians on there some, but and it's for women and it's about women. Mm-hmm. And it's about women who do cool things, write books or, or release an album or, um, you know, st- start a service or have a business, or maybe they have a, a story that's really something to be told and, and could help other, other women. Um, uh, and, and then once a month, I, I review a, a book, a, a, some sort of a self-help book by mm-hmm. a woman. Um, doesn't have to be for women, but by a woman. So um, anyway, it it it's kind of a variety show, I guess mm-hmm. you would say. Yeah, you know, kind of like a podcast variety show. It's never the same. It's not on one particular subject, but it is definitely women oriented and for women. I mean, men can listen if they want, but they probably find <laughs> a lot of it pretty boring. Um, and, um, but anyway, I, that is High Notes with Doctor B, and you can find it on all the all the podcast you know, Spotify and, and, and iTunes and all of that. And then um, if somebody would like to go to the website, um, there's a landing page where you can find notes and who all has been on there before and that sort of thing. Um, I'm pretty new to it. So I'm about eight episodes in, which has been a very inter- big learning curve there. Yeah. But it's been enjoyable. I, I, I like it. I mean, I'm in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, I, uh, if anyone is interested in musically, the things that I do or the things that I've written musically or about music, um, that's Denise Ritter, Bernardini.com. All right. Thank you so and Bernardini, much. Bernardini, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-I-N-I. And I will have those links or in the show notes. So. Okay. Yeah. Great. You're good that's to go. great. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on here. That was, I love that story. I, that was, I think, perfect timing for me, just having written my book and kind of thinking about these, these themes and uh, you really brought it all home for me. So thank you. Well, good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found this episode inspiring or at least entertaining. Please subscribe and tell all of your friends to subscribe and, you know, like me and rate me and say nice things about me on social media. All that stuff really matters and it costs you zero dollars. And speaking of things that cost zero dollars, I give out 20 minute consultations for free for new clients. So listen, if you've got a story you're not telling, a brand that's in need of an authentic voice or a brand voice that's in need of great content and an audience to enjoy it, I would love to help you out. Head on over to my website, thatsallowed.com, to find out more. Are you ready to make your voice heard? Good, because that's allowed. <laughs>